If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Today is a big day, and we want you, whatever you're doing now, uh, you know, if you want to drive around and burn off gas, I know it's not good for the environment, but it's very good for the CHML Children's Fund, because today is three cent a liter day at participating Pioneer Gas locations, and three cents from every liter goes to the CHML Children's Fund to talk more about all of this and whoop up some more support. Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund, and here now. Olivia, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. All right. Uh, talk about what this is and Pioneer's involvement over the last uh, 30 plus years and, and what it's meant to the Children's Fund. It's raised over half a million dollars and last year it raised over $27,000 and it's a big uh, contribution to the Children's Fund. Pioneer's one of our biggest um, donors. And last year was a big year. Talk about what it was like during the pandemic, because, you know, uh, obviously people were out and about less. But last year was a good year for us, was it not? Yeah. Last year, I I sent over the email that I was reading. I think it was almost a million uh, liters that were pumped at the pumps last year. There's 39 locations. And last year, I believe it was 27,500 that was donated to the Children's Fund. So this year, Pioneer has added five additional locations. So we have 44 locations in total, and we're hoping to beat that uh, 27,500 and and get a bigger total this year. It's pretty cool, especially when you see people lining up to get gas, not because the price is down, but just because they want to help. Yeah, and I'm I'm almost on empty. I have to go to Burlington, so on my way home from Burlington to Hamilton, I'm going to fill up my tank uh, to contribute to the three cents a liter. All right. Talk about the details. It's very easy. All you got to do is just pull in and fill up. Yeah, so you can visit 900CHML.com uh, and you can see the 44 locations. Uh-huh. All right, so how else uh, can we donate? How else can we support the CHML Children's Fund as well as 3 Centiliter Day? So, yeah, you can uh, go online, 900CHML.com. You can donate via Canada um, Helps or PayPal uh, Giving Fund. You can visit us at the radio station. You can drop off toys as well. Our toy drive runs to the... Uh, 17th and charities are still coming in till next Thursday or you can text the word donate to 30333 to donate 10 or $20. Man, this is all going by so fast, isn't it? I mean, it just seems like we lit the Christmas tree of hope and now boom, we're almost half over here. I know and we're 12 days away. So um, as things get going and as this progresses uh, about halfway through, just over halfway through here now, what does it look like from your standpoint, what you're seeing? I mean, you're, you're in the trenches of this uh, every year and such. What does this year look like? Um, donations are, are pretty well. They're coming in. I have a, actually a stack of checks that I have to actually process this week. But I do, I will say that toys are down. We are struggling to kind of put more and more toys out for the charities. We are doing our best, but I do find that the toy donations have been down this year. All right. And this is all part of Operation Santa Claus, the old Jimmy uh, Lomax uh, fund that just keeps right on going, keeps right on going. Does this still resonate with people? I think so. And it's it's nice to do the uh, to donate that toy. And we actually had uh, an employee from the city of Hamilton. And what they did was they bought a toy that they would have enjoyed as a child. And they did the Christmas party and they brought the toys and he dropped them off today. So just things like that. Um, or just like, you know, if you can't donate um, money, but you have a, you want to donate like a little toy that that works as well. All right. So when is the deadline to actually donate? Because obviously you got to get all of this stuff out and about and such for toys, for donations, what have you. 
Yeah, so toys we're cutting off as a Sunday because we, we're going to start picking up on Tuesday and Wednesday and try to get them all out the door by Thursday. So if you are planning, uh, you just need to get in a hold of me by, by Monday and then I can arrange a pickup or we can have you drop them off at the radio station. All right. And what about funds? How long can we donate? I guess you can donate whenever you want, can't you? Yeah, you can donate all year round. So any funds that come in now are going out as well as they'll start going out in the new year. Uh, we already have about three to four charities lined up for our January meeting um, because those fundings are for 2024. And what's the best way to contribute money? Money, you can go online, 900chml.com, uh, through PayPal or Canada uh, Canada Helps. You can call me. All my information is on the website. And uh, you can text the donate, three zero, don't, text donate to 30333, 10 or $20. All right. And that's a easy peasy way to do it as well. Yeah. All right. Celebrating three cent a liter day happening now at all participating Pioneer gas stations. Get in there, fill up three cents a liter goes to the CHML Children's Fund. Olivia Mackay with us, president of the Children's Fund. Olivia, thanks so much. Good luck. Thank you. The big United Nations Summit on Climate, uh, COP28, has uh, come to an end. And on Wednesday, they declared the world must transition away from oil, gas, and coal. A significant decision by nearly 200 countries in nearly 300, uh, 30 years, rather, of climate talks. You know, I'm thinking most Canadians probably thought that that was already made, that decision. <laughs> That's what we're doing this for. Uh, you know, which is, is kind of odd when you think about it. Uh, and really is the debate about whether we need to transition away from uh, fossil fuels or really is the debate, uh, how are we going to do it? Let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman, professor with the School of Environment, uh, a school of the environment with the University of Toronto, specializing in environmental studies and is with us now. Carrie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am very well. Carrie, do you do you think that some are in this part of the world thinking, well, I thought we've already been there. I thought we've already gone past that. That you know, the world must transition away from oil and and gas, and especially coal. Um, how significant is this decision by the rest of the world? Yeah, no, I I agree with what you said in your intro, and I I love the Beverly Hillbillies, but a lot of people are going to be too young to remember that. But uh, Really, people thought, well, we're already there, but we're not. And here's the thing. So, you know, in 30 years of climate conferences and 27 specific conferences, nobody has actually said that we have to get away from fossil fuels. We have to stop. So, you know, that is considered groundbreaking. Um, you know, and I don't blame people that assumed, well, we, we've known that for some time. But remember that the oil and gas sectors were very much there, including very powerful leaders from uh, the Middle East. So, you know, that is the good news with it, is we finally sort of said what the problem is. Um, but the real problem is there's no guarantee of deliverables at all. Um, and so, you know, there, it, and this country is kind of top of the list. There's a big difference between what you say you're going to do and what you actually do. And so a lot of it will now depend on whether people rise to this as quickly as we can. Uh, will the next big debate then will, uh, be how do we do it? Because if it's taken 30 years for us to realize that there's an issue, uh, as many thought that there already was, we already got there. How do, how do you figure out how to do this? Um, because again, a lot of the, uh, energy companies, the traditional fossil fuel energy companies 
have, you know, productive ways to transition. But it seems we're, again, this is a, a, a debate that's, that's uh, conducted on the extremes. Yeah. And, and so the challenge, if we, if we talk about Canada, um, you know, the challenge is we're really divided on this. Um, and we're divided from province to province and person to person and political theory or political party to political party. That's going to be a big challenge. And if we just look at what Canada's production right now is with fossil fuels, oil, gas, etc., it's very high and it's scheduled to go quite, you know, quite a bit higher. Uh, before we come down again. Look, I would say, you know, if the year was 1970 and we had this announcement, we're finally, we have 200, almost 200 countries on board. This is the problem. We're coming up with a blueprint. Um, I would say we're really dealing with this. But the year is not 1970. It's 2023. And the climate crisis is well underway. And so we don't have that time. But, you know, the recognition is is a very good thing. And what will have to happen is is we'll very quickly have to start pulling away from this. And look, a lot depends. Are we going to have a liberal government? Are we going to have a, a, you know, a conservative government? Um, and, and, you know, neither of those are perfect, by the way, on the environment. They're both very problematic in a lot of ways. And here's a big one. Will Canada push all of this onto the provinces? Because we don't get along as provinces. That's a big problem. So, you know, those are some of the challenges on a global level, really, really tough because the high income countries are the ones doing the most damage. And a very good thing that came out of this is that we really, for the global south, meaning low income countries, we really have to start planning for, a, you know, a loss and damage um, support program for lower income countries. So the scaffolding is there. Um, I, I, you know, my feelings are so mixed on this because I, I, I do think there is definitely some success in here, but if we don't deliver really quickly, it won't mean much. Um, are we really divided on climate change? Cause I don't think we are divided on climate change. Carrie. No, we're not. I think we're, we're divided. That, I think we're divided so on, I think no, we're divided on what to do about, about climate change. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I think, and I, I agree think with that, you. We're and, not divided on climate change. That's, there's still a few people out there that don't think it sure. exists. Well, that that's okay. Let them think what they want, but exactly. Um, no, we're not divided on climate change. We're very divided on what to do next. That is the problem. And if you speak to people in Western, it's not just Western Canada, but particularly, you know, they will say, we get it. We understand we're in a climate crisis, but here's our plan. And usually that plan just doesn't involve any immediate reductions to oil and gas. Um, and, you know, a lot of the thinking is let's let's make money from oil and gas to fund our transition. And look, from a business point of view, that makes great sense. I get it. The problem is we don't have time for that. That's the reality. Uh, the reality is we've also been hearing that for decades. So do we just yes. give up? <laughs> do we just give up, Carrie? Because honestly, if we can't get the world off of coal, which is the worst polluter of all, yeah. how can we get the world off everything? Like, again, this circle just is not squaring here. It, to, to me, uh, we're at, we're, you're telling everybody to shut off the taps and pay higher taxes because it is, because it is just simply too late. And yet we cannot get the world off of coal. So how do you get the world off of everything when this movement has failed to get the world off of coal? 
Well, you know, that's part of it. But but in fairness to the conference, uh, you know, coal was very much included in this. So if people actually in co- countries it, it really should not only be in, it should not only be excuse me for interrupting, Carrie, but it should not yeah. only be included. It is the biggest polluter. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Um, no, Carrie, it's, it's the it's the biggest of all the polluters. No, I know. I know it is. But, you know, when, when you look at the high income countries, and the people that, you know, if you look at the U.S., uh, you look at Canada, you look at countries like that. Um, you know, for example, in Canada, coal's not our biggest challenge. Now, we're not top of the list because our population isn't. Uh, if we had a higher population, we probably would be top of the list, but but we don't. But, you know, it, it's very dangerous, though, if we go down the road that we need to give up on this because the implications of that, I don't mean to be melodramatic, but I think you know what we all know, are almost un thinkable if if we give up and and the goal here is 1.5 are we going to meet that reach that goal i don't know um and we have made some progress because the catastrophic four degrees plus is is all indications not going to happen that the sort of netflix specials end of the world things that's not going to happen um but you know if we don't pull it down we're still going to have a massive crisis so i i think there is some progress here but we have to deliver on it and, you know, the challenge is we're divided nationally and, and globally, my God, we've got two major wars going on and, you know, uh, we've got lots of problems. But in fairness, we had 200 countries, agree, almost 200 countries agreeing on this. So that, that's positive. All right, Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, Professor School of the Environment with the University of Toronto and the United Nations uh, declaring the world must transition away from oil, gas, and coal. A lot of us thought we already had. All right, Kerry, as always, <laughs> thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Hey, you know, the weather just might be okay to look up and see a bit of a show tonight in the form of a meteor shower. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to be with you. Always great to leave the planet and see what's going on uh, up and above in the heavens and such. Uh, Tell us what we could see tonight. Well, the Geminid meteor shower is on tap for tonight, and as you indicated, the weather looks as if it might actually cooperate. Chilly, but that's okay. Uh, The meteor shower, of course, is a regular event. Lots and lots of shooting stars streaking across the sky, and what's really good about uh, tonight's event is that the moon basically is is a no-show. We had a new moon last night, so there's no moon to add light pollution to the night sky, and the Geminids are one of the more reliable of the media showers they are very prolific and very very consistent in the show that they produce so what is it what are we seeing why now okay so the shooting stars will be visible well technically from sunset but you really need to have uh closer to midnight midnight till 2 a.m is really a pretty good time to be looking at it but as I say any time after dark is okay later is better Shooting stars, of course, are little pieces of debris, rocky material left over from uh, the debris spewed out by an asteroid, actually, rather than a comet, asteroid 3200 Phaethonon. Uh, and that debris, the Earth passes through every year as we circuit around the sun. And so all this debris strikes our atmosphere at many, many tens of kilometers a second, about 50 to 60 kilometers a second. And that's what basically incinerates the particles as they 
pass through our atmosphere, giving us the light show, which we call the meteor shower. Uh, these things predictable. Uh, do astronomers still learn from these events or is it same old and just a chance to view again? It's really more of the latter. The, the, the regular meteor showers, as you say, are here year after year. We mm. certainly still, still do get some science from them. We do observations of these meteor showers to track the debris. Some of the material we do spectroscopy on, so we actually can fine-tune our understanding of the components that made up that particular rock that incinerated in our atmosphere. But generally speaking, it's more uh, a celestial fireworks display, something that we can all enjoy, amateur professional astronomers, just the casual observer. Meteor showers don't require sophisticated equipment. They just require you to be in as dark a location as possible, get fully dark adapted, and just look up at the sky, sort of southeast all the way up to the zenith. Uh, dress warmly, of course, at this time of the year. Uh, does this involve the space station in any way? What will they see? They'll see basically the same thing as you and I, except they have to look down rather than look up. Mm. Uh, the debris is flashing through our atmosphere, creating these streaks. They'll be able to see those streaks over the dark side of the planet. Now, remember, of course, the space station orbits once every 90 minutes, so 45 minutes of daylight, 45 minutes of darkness. So every 90 minutes throughout tonight, they'll have about 45 minutes worth of opportunity to look for the meteors. But as I said, they're below the space station, whereas we're looking at them above us. Uh, any concern for them? Any chance of debris going one way or the other? Well, I, I guess the, the chances are higher of an impact during a meteor shower. However, when all is said and done, space is still very, very big and we are in a pretty empty part of it. So the chances of being struck are extremely remote, not zero, but extremely remote. I don't think NASA actually engages in any additional activity of preparation for meteor showers. But technically, yes, there's more debris flying through the area that they are moving through. So I guess you've got to say there's a heightened risk, but it's sort of like buying one lottery ticket or two. I wouldn't get too excited over the chances of winning. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. Uh, so how long will this event last? Does it carry on for a day or so, or is it pretty much tonight? That's it. Oh, no, it's actually been going on for the last few nights. Uh, again, technically, we started entering the debris cloud uh, about two weeks ago and will carry on for two weeks. However, the density of the material that we're passing through peaks tonight, which means the amount of activity in our atmosphere will peak tonight. So tonight is definitely the best time for observing. But if it's cloudy tonight and it's clear tomorrow night, definitely go out. You'll certainly see increased activity in the night sky. But tonight at its peak, you could be seeing literally one shooting star per minute uh, crossing the sky, depending on how bright your local environment is. Tomorrow night, it'll be about a quarter of that. It gets less as time goes by. And this comes by every year. You can set your watch by it, Scott, just like the Perseids in August and the, uh, the uh, Orionids in October. Because the Earth is in a very stable orbit around the sun, we're crossing these debris trains at the same time every single year. One bigger than the other, more spectacular, or does it just depend on the weather and where you are? 
Uh, no, the, there, there is more debris that has been kicked out by 3200 Faith and On. So there is definitely more debris that we're plowing through tonight. And because of the geometry, they're hitting our atmosphere at a very, very healthy clip in and around 50, 60 kilometers a second. So not all meteor showers are created equal. Some are less dense, some are hitting the atmosphere less fiercely and so on. Uh, but the general properties are the same, but it, it's the, the details which allow the Geminids to be such a good show tonight. All right, look up tonight, especially around midnight. Uh, you could see quite the natural show. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Always fun, Paul. Thanks for the time. Be well. Clear skies, dear Scott. We've been talking forever uh, through, well, at least through the summer, that uh, the liberals are just nosediving in the polls and the conservatives are climbing. Well, hang on there. New polling from Abacus shows a decrease in the lead of the federal conservatives, still out in front, but has tapered off, and uh, the liberals on their way up. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and here now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hope you are well, too, Scott. Yeah, we just did this poll to make things interesting. You know, (laughs) shake it up a little bit. No, no, it's a legitimate poll. 1,900 people done December 7th to 12th, I believe it was. And, yeah, as you said, uh, I think our last poll had the... The uh, conservatives up by 15, yeah, so 5% uh, change in all of that. Um, so that's a bit noteworthy because 5% is, you know, statistically significant. So why the change in the last couple of weeks? So if you look at the data, what's interesting is the liberals really haven't gained, right? We're not seeing some movement that would suggest the liberals found their mojo and have come back. You're seeing the, um, they're basically 27 is near where they were the last time we polled. Uh, but we, what we did see uh, was the conservatives dropped and uh, in that two-week period um, between our last poll and this poll, um, Canadians saw more of Polyev uh, in two different circumstances that were likely not helpful. One, around the uh, Canada-Ukraine free trade debate. And you'll remember a lot of that hullabaloo about carbon pricing or no carbon pricing with Canada bringing that to the Ukraine. And the other thing that happened, of course, was the filibuster, significant thing that happened was the filibuster in the House of Commons and a lot of posturing around that. And the liberals, I think, got the better of the messaging around that because their response to Polyev's approach was to say, you're cutting funding for this, you're cutting funding for that, you're not supporting funding for you know X, Y, and Z. And those are about the only two big things, I think, that can speak to uh, why there is a drop at this point. Now, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long answer. I mean, 10 points is still a big lead. Let's be clear there. Um, But it it does say to the conservatives, hey, you can't take anything for granted. Uh, Obviously, and everybody was wondering how long this role would last, per se. Uh, No one expects the opposition to vote for the governing party's policies. I'm not sure why that's an issue. So here we go again with the conservatives shooting themselves in the foot, because if the liberals aren't gaining and the conservatives are dropping, clearly it's the conservatives that are wearing this, not the liberals. 
Yeah, and look, and look, uh, e- equally, um, that should tell the conservatives they have work to do, uh, that they still have vulnerability. We did see one of the interesting switches within the data where we did see the liberals picking up some points was with the Gen Z crowd, so 18 to 30. Now, the last significant poll, the, the conservatives were doing much better with that group. In the past, when Justin Trudeau has won elections, um, he's done well with that 18 to 30 cohort, which is now aged a little bit. Um, uh, so that will be an important point for him. We're also seeing uh, in the poll, Scott, that some of the 2021 people who had voted liberal and over the, our last few polls weren't happy with the liberals are now a little bit more um, open to voting liberal um, because what we also found, we found a lot of things, I guess, Scott, in the end, what we also found is that there is still a discomfort with the alternative to the liberal government. While a lot of people want change, where a lot of people are angry with Justin Trudeau, um, they're not at warm to a large enough degree yet uh, for Pierre Polyev to assume anything is in the bag for him. Pierre Polyev is appearing too prickly. Say that three times fast. <laughs> Peter Piper picked a pepper. Pick a pal. I'm why not does... even going to try it. I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> why does uh, Pierre Polyev keep hammering away at Justin Trudeau when those opinions are already baked in? We already know what the you know what what the public feels or how they feel about the prime minister. Why keep hammering that? And at the risk of making yourself look stupid, look like an idiot, look like you're just hammering somebody for no reason. One, I think it's habitual, um, and, and, and that and that habitual behavior keeps his caucus happy, and caucus management's important. Uh, two, I think it's also some of the voter coalition that uh, Polyev has brought back. So some of the people who um, voted for or vote for Maxime Bernier or others who were sort of tepid when Aaron O'Toole was leader. So he, he, I think he feels he has to show his, you know, hardest conservative bona fides to them. The danger with that, as you allude to, is that some of the switch voters you're looking at who are, aren't ardent partisans, but aren't happy with the government and just want good governance. They don't like that stuff as much. Yeah. So how will Pierre Polyev receive this? Uh, look, I, the, they weren't going to stay with 15, 17, 18 points forever. Uh, yeah. I think what Polyev has demonstrated is that he's prepared to learn and grow. Um, we won't know if he's really received some of the points that we're suggesting are being made there probably until the new year when parliament resumes again or or they start touring again. Um, but again, uh, I'm sure he'd prefer to have a, a double digit lead uh, than no lead at all. But there's learnings there. And anybody who wants to become prime minister who's currently opposition leader can't be afraid to embrace the learnings. It'll be interesting, and I I think he's making an appearance on the show in the next week, so we'll have to ask him what he's going to do to prevent from uh, shooting himself in the foot. I've asked him that question in the past, and he sort of shied away from it, but we'll see what happens this time. Uh, Good luck. If you get an answer to that, you'll be doing better than many of your peers, which (laughs) you do anyway, Scott, as we know. Oh, Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. As always, Tim, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Housing, 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 housing. We've been talking about it since uh, we're blue in the face. And we're starting to see some changes and some refocus from the federal government. And they are now taking inspiration from a wartime, post-World War II time housing plans to address the modern housing crisis. I think this is a great idea, but how do we do this and not repeat the same mistakes that have anti-urban sprawlers and extreme environmentalists up in arms? Let's bring in Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart, uh, Smart Prosperity Institute and professor, Assistant Professor in Business uh, Ivy Business School, Western University, and here now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Ah, thank you for having me. All right, Mike, I found this, I find this fascinating and, and we've talked about this before, but when, when, and I think this wartime housing plan is a great idea. It needs that kind of attention. However, when I think of that, I think of, you know, the aerial views of, you know, a house after house in the subdivision, road after road, where all these little cookie cutter houses look exactly the same. And those are the posters that the anti-urban sprawl movement always use. Uh, when say we shouldn't be doing this, it's killing the environment. So how do you balance that with what's happening in 2023? Well, certainly we, we need to be smart uh, about the way we develop. But, you know, we certainly have to realize that our population is growing and, and we need a, a home for everyone. And this catalog can certainly help with that, that we can have all kinds of uh, housing forms, uh, everything from single detached to uh, four fourplexes to, uh, you know, six uh, story mass timber high rises. So, you know, I, I think we just need to have that balance that absolutely, you know, we need to uh, protect and, and preserve our environment. But we also need to make sure that uh, everyone has a safe place to uh, call home. How does looking at through a war, post-World uh, World War II lens change things? What's different? Well, I, I think we uh, should adopt uh, some of the best practices we had back then because we we found ourselves in very similar situations as, as today. So, for instance, we haven't built enough housing in Canada over the last 15 years. Well, that was the same in the late 1940s. We didn't build enough because of World War II and the uh, Great Depression mm -hmm. before then. Uh, today, we have uh, high levels of population growth. We had the same thing uh, back then where, you know, we had all the returning veterans, but we also had high levels of immigration from from war torn, torn Europe. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, so I think we can learn some of those lessons, but we do need to change things. Uh, you know, I think the sort of 900 square foot strawberry boxes uh, that we built then probably don't make as much sense in 2023. Mm -hmm. So we need to have other housing forums. But I think if we go back that there are a lot of parallels uh, from history. And I think we, you know, we need to uh, we need to learn those lessons and uh, reuse them in the future. Uh, are you concerned we'll run into the same challenges and protests that we did when trying to build 10 or 20 years ago? Well, I do think uh, things are changing. So, for example, mm -hmm. uh, take that example of fourplexes. You know, two or three years ago, if you and I were having this conversation, I would have suggested that, no, there, these things are never going to be legalized, that there's just going to be, you know, too much local opposition. 
But we're seeing city after city uh, legalize uh, these things, make them uh, being able to build them as of right. So I think we are starting to see some changes out there. And I actually think the catalog can help with this, that if we have these catalog of of designs that that people can look at and go, okay, yeah, I'd actually be okay with that uh, in, in my neighborhood. That's not, you know, a particularly strange looking building. So, you know, we, again, it all comes down to balance that, you know, we understand that uh, people have fear of the unknowns, but at the same time, we need to balance that with the, with the need for more housing. Who comes up with the templates or the options? How does, how does, how do we get there? Yeah, so the uh, federal government's going to launch a consultation in in January. It it sounds like this program will be run by the Canadian Mortgage and, and Housing Corporation, um, which uh, had the the old catalogs back in back in the fifties and sixties. Uh, we'll have to sort of outsource this to uh, to designers, so it won't be the actual government itself uh, mm-hmm. designing these properties, but rather it will be purchasing them um, either directly or through some kind of design competition where the best you know private sector uh, architects can design a, a suite of uh, of great uh, blueprints uh, for for people to choose from what do you think will be the challenges or concerns moving forward with this well I think we in order to get it right we need to do a few things uh, so the biggest thing is we need to make sure that these homes are affordable. Uh, in the sense that that construction costs are kept low, uh, one way of doing that is ensuring that the the homes are simple to build, that they don't take a lot of uh, skilled labor. Though certainly we'll need electricians and roofers and plumbers, but you can make certain design choices uh, in order to uh, reduce the number of hours required on site. And then finally, we'll need to make sure that these homes are are energy efficient. Uh, you know, to to create affordability, to make sure people aren't spending too much uh, money on hydro and gas. But if we can do that and get these designs out there quickly, I think this program has a big chance of, of being a success. Uh, will this keep uh, those happy that don't like urban sprawl? Like at the end of the day, have we come to a point where we've realized we have to have these discussions rather than just say no? Have we got there? Yeah, well, I, I certainly think those those discussions are are ongoing um, and, and largely sort of outside of uh, of this catalog. I think that the catalog helps you know with the actual building of these homes, whether they be on new greenfield sites on the edge of town or 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 infill but i think those discussions are going to continue about how fast does the population grow uh how much land do we need to support that that population and so on so i absolutely do think that municipalities need to have this conversation and need to be realistic about uh, uh the realities of, of population growth and ensuring that uh, everyone in canada has a place to call home it seems that building has been a bad word in Canada, in Ontario specifically, for a long time. Is that changing? Is that attitude changing? Yeah, it it, it really is. Um, when when you look at uh, when you look at the polls, uh, so for instance, David Coletto at at Abacus uh, had a recent poll that just came out today that looked at. Uh, uh, what uh, Canadians would like to see from a, a Polyev government? Uh, should we have one after the next election? And literally 97% of respondents said that they would like to ensure that the, the next government uh, focuses on housing affordability. So I think there is uh, an understanding that we need to do more on housing. Obviously, people disagree about the, the, the details and you know some want mm-hmm. these homes to be built 
somewhere else. But I, I do think uh, that attitudes are changing. I think people look around at how high rents are. They look around at all the tent cities and all the homelessness. And basically say that, that something has to change, that we need to build more homes. Do you think this will be eventually baked into policy so we don't get into this problem again? Because it is a self-inflicted wound. Are we learning from this? I, I, I think we are. Um, you know, we always, you know, tend to, to forget these lessons sometimes. And, you know, we do we have had, uh, you know, series of housing crises over the last 80 years. Yeah, but I, I'm optimistic that with these uh, designs, uh, they can be fast tracked for approvals uh, from either the federal government at CMHC or municipal approvals that they can get building permits uh, out there faster and, and so on. So this certainly won't solve all of our problems. Uh, but I think it can uh, certainly help uh, speed up the process. Always fascinating. Mike Moffitt with the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, Assistant Professor in Business, Ivy Business School, Western University. Mike, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, from December 14th to the 17th, Cirque du Soleil's new show, Crystal, is taking the aerobatics and artistry that the company is known for and reimagining it on ice. Leading the production is as Hjordis Lee of Welland, Ontario, and Hjordis is with us now. Hjordis, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. So how does this happen? How do you, did you run away and join the circus? I mean, how did you get here? <laughs> That's funny that you mentioned that because I did use that phrase when I got hired, when I wrote to my mom and dad that I'm running away to the circus when I first got hired by Spirit. Um I found myself here, uh, well, I've been in the professional skating show business for about 14 years, Mm -hmm. working on Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines and other shows abroad. And when we found out that Cirque was going to do their first ice show, um, I, of course, applied because it's a dream to work with such a company as Cirque du Soleil. And eventually, I heard uh, back from them in January 2019, uh, requesting for me to join their show. And I've been with them ever since. So uh, you said you had skated in other shows and such, but we hear so much of Cirque du Soleil, and it's so unique. How is it different? What's that like? Well, it's different in the sense that they really have blended and and married the uh, multi-discipline of ice skating with aerial acrobatics, floor acrobatics, along with super uh, trendy music, pop music, um, with some musicians that play in the forefront as well as in the background. So you have the beautiful blend of all these different types of artistry um, and disciplines happening all at once. And I've never been in a show quite like it. What's your touring schedule like? How do, how do, what, what's the day-to-day business like? Um, well, I spend um, around like, can vary, 9 to 12 hours a day at venue. Um, typically, I start around 1130 um, on the ice, and I train um, both singles and paradagio. Then um, later in the day, I'll come back and work on the straps routine with my straps partner. 
and also strength and conditioning. Uh, I have to eat a little bit in between. Um, and of course, there's the makeup, which takes a while to apply and to, hmm. you know, get ready for the show. And um, depends on the city, but we'll start the show around 7, 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Uh, it's a two-hour, 20-minute show. And um, by then, it's uh, well, 10 to either 11, and it's time to leave the venue. So um, hmm. we do this starting usually on a Thursday, all the way through the Sunday, uh, and we tour several weeks at a time, and we get um, a couple of week breaks in between uh, each leg. So obviously, uh, it's the same show wherever you go in every venue, but you still have to practice in that venue. You still have to condition. You're still constantly working on this. Right. Yeah. So what to somebody who's never seen a Cirque du Soleil show, this is obviously the first uh, ice production, but what is it like? What can we expect to see? Well, you're going to see some, um, it's a beautiful production in the sense that the packaging with the lights and the music with the so many different types of um, creative outlets, like with the skating, you'll see single skating, you will see some pairs uh, with when a guy, little girl above his head skating. Um, and then all, all in amongst that, you'll see um, some swinging poles where people are jumping off uh, the top of the pole, down onto the ice, and you'll see um, a few acts. So that's typically when there's a an acrobat doing their discipline. So you're going to see a, a huge rainbow of things um, all wrapped up in such a beautiful package um, that Cirque is so well known for. How many performers staff on this rolling show? I mean, how big is this production? Uh, there's around, uh, I believe, 42 to maybe 45 artists. Hmm. And then, I guess, um, the management, uh, crew, um, and so forth. So, altogether, I think we add up to around 90 people that we travel on the road together. Um, so it it takes a lot to create such a show like this, and um, yeah. What would you say to anyone else that's thinking of jumping uh, in, into something like this? <laughs> well, always reach for the stars because you never know where it might lead you to. Um, never did I realize that I would have the opportunity to work with Cirque du Soleil because before they never had skating shows. So you never know what the future holds, but um, always, you know, follow your, your passion and um, what you put in is what you usually get out. Yordis Lee with us, lead performer in Crystal, the new show from Cirque du Soleil from December 14th to the 17th uh, at First Ontario Centre. And of course, uh, out of Welland, Ontario, making it, uh, I guess, to the, I don't want to say center ring. There's no ring here. It's center ice. Uh, Yordis, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. Have a good night.
You might remember uh, over the last several months, we've had Sam Cooper on the air, founder of the Bureau, best-selling author, award-winning investigative journalist, to talk about uh, foreign interference in the last two federal elections here in Canada. Uh, and we certainly know that there's an inquiry going on, and, and where that is, nobody's quite sure. But now we have questions about the conservative leadership race and it being the focus of foreign interference. To talk more about all of this, founder of the Bureau, Sam Cooper, is with us now. Sam, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. This story just seems to keep on growing. Uh, it seems that uh, it is something that would concern all of Canadians across all political stripes. Why are we having such a difficulty getting to the bottom of this? It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, I, I agree totally. And that's the focus of my public interest reporting at the Bureau. As you know, the mandate of this Foreign Interference Commission is only the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. And as we know, there's limited uh, access to evidence for parties except for the Liberal government. So I've continued to report uh, for public reasons, uh, public interest reasons on the the access to thesis intelligence reports I have that point to a much broader problem. Let's focus on uh, the conservative race allegations. I'm citing in an October 2022 thesis intelligence assessment that's very broad. It's focused on uh, interference that is the support of preferred candidates at all levels of Canadian politics. The document says that some of the uh, foreign interference proxy actors are community leaders, and they're active in interfering from the provincial level to the municipal level to the federal level to the riding level. Uh, so that right there shows you that it's going to be difficult to get to the bottom of this if we have, you know, after the David Johnston's report, which uh, is a whole other interview, we've got the next step, and already it's looking like it's too narrow. But to focus, let's just focus on the main point of my recent reporting. Yes. Thesis says uh, their intelligence indicates the government of India was engaged in foreign interference related to the leadership race for a federal political party in 2022. That's a quote. Now, uh, the facts of the case that are cited from what I can read fit the Conservative Party, and that is that uh, a government of India proxy agent was saying that uh, India was supporting one candidate and on the other through the purchases of party memberships, and on the other hand, inhibiting against another uh, named male candidate. We don't know the name of the male, but uh, this candidate was told you can't campaign in Indian community diaspora events and cease to success because that politician had taken a position that angered India. So in a nutshell, that shows that uh, India, China, probably uh, definitely Russia's in there, but uh, India and China are working our diaspora communities hard. They're trying to get in between our voters and our politicians with foreign governments in many uh, corrupt and clandestine ways. It seems nobody is immune to this sort of thing. How does this change the discussion? Why are they nibbling a bit at every stripe? They're nibbling a bit at every stripe because they want to uh, not only select the leaders of our country, that is, we're, let's just speak mostly about the main threat, China, right now, but they want to, as the expert Charles Burton has told me, our former uh, diplomat mm. in China, China's interference networks want to have uh, uh, a hand in all, all parties, 
all pockets. They want to control the game by controlling the opposition. They want to have people in these parliamentary committee hearings. And they want to work their subtle influence through what's called their United Front Work Department and their intelligence agencies. And so you're right. All stripes across the board, ideologically, every party, they want to, you know, most specifically China, wants to subtly influence and, uh, as I have reported, clandestinely fund using, I'm going to add something here, proxy agents that come from very nefarious backgrounds is my uh, intelligence and evidence. Uh, now that we're aware or it's obvious that this is affecting more than one party, will there be more cooperation between parties to get to the bottom of this? Well, look, with some credit to the Conservative Party, uh, I would have to say they've been more forthcoming to my questions on this recent story that points at their party. Uh, they, they said they weren't aware of the allegations I cited. I went further and said uh, recent reporting from the United States government alleges that India's government is using organized crime proxies in some very serious hostile foreign activity in Canada and the United States. Conservative Party, do you want this Foreign Interference Commission to look at the potential of foreign states using gang proxies? And they said absolutely yes. So credit to them. Um, I do. Uh, what can I say? With this Interference Commission, uh, I have many more stories to go before and during and probably after they'll be done. And I haven't, I don't have confidence yet that there'll, there, there'll be a real rigorous examination of the, uh, the underlying and direct problems in our democracy. Uh, let me ask you something, Sam, a little different note here. We remember way back when, when the prime minister stood up and made the accusations against the Indian government, saying that it was involved in the assassination of a, a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil. Uh, many of the allies, allies backed away saying, well, you know, what did you do this now, this way for? And then uh, several weeks later, uh, President Biden comes out and, and says the U.S. is involved, uh, has uh, an examples of the same sort of thing happening uh, in in the United States, what's the difference in the way the U.S. handled it, and as to the way Canada, or sorry, Canada handled it? Yeah, I unpacked a bit of that evidence in my story. Look, it's it's very clear the U.S. government had an investigation ongoing and was able to stop allegedly a plot of an assassination of uh, one of their citizens, run by allegedly Indian intelligence using allegedly an international drug trafficker who was allegedly interested in trying to participate in this hit in Vancouver. So what does our prime minister do? He jumps out ahead of the U.S. sealed indictment and and almost politicizes that. Uh, I'm finding it hard to keep my comments under wraps here. The right way to do this is let law enforcement do its job. And then it comes out in court. You investigate and you prosecute before you make uh, sensational allegations. Sam Cooper with us, founder of the Bureau, best-selling author, award-winning investigative journalist, and all over foreign interference in this country. Sam, we'll talk again. Thanks for the time. Good luck. Good luck to you. Thanks so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The United Nations General Assembly has voted for a humanitarian ceasefire as reactions to the Israeli-Hamas war in Gaza around the world continue to evolve. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. And here now, Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. 
Uh, this all sounds good. Uh, nobody likes, uh, certainly in, in democracies, likes to see the collateral damage of war and the pain and suffering that goes along. Um, but how effective will a ceasefire be if Hamas isn't listening and doesn't release any hostages? What is the significance of this? Well, first of all, you, you're quite right that anyone uh, uh, with any decency will be appalled uh, and extremely saddened by the loss of innocent civilian lives. In a war, the loss of innocent uh, civilian lives are a terrible tragedy. It is sadly a feature of war. It is the case that uh, if we look at uh, some of the statistics published by the UN itself in conflicts that have taken place in the 21st century, the um, loss of civilian life compared to that of military, that is collateral damage, has been something like nine to one, which is vastly higher than in the current conflict. And if you look at civilian deaths per airstrikes, uh, again, whether you look at the global average, which was about four and a half uh, in each uh, airstrike, in the case of Mosul, it was 17.1. In the case of Aleppo, 21.7. These are vastly higher than what we see in, in Gaza. Uh, but despite that, obviously, if there was some magical formula where we could end the conflict and bring about permanent peace, that would be a wonderful development. But what is happening right now, unfortunately, is almost counterintuitive, that uh, we would like to believe that a ceasefire will save lives, but the reality may be that the world is not as we wish it to be, but it is uh, a geopolitical uh, morass where uh, there are horrific forces that have committed terrible atrocities that intend to do it over and over again. And this kind of ceasefire would very likely only benefit Hamas. No wonder they greeted this uh, resolution by the General Assembly with enthusiasm because they know that it doesn't really do much in terms of constraining them, but would certainly constrain Israel. What is a surprise is that Canada voted for this resolution. I think this has shocked not only Israel, but some of uh, uh, Israel's allies in Europe as well as as United States. And it is also in sharp contrast with even the joint statement that was issued uh, just the day before by the prime ministers of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, which was uh, moving away from the very strong moral clarity that was first expressed after the horrific, uh, incredibly savage and brutal attack by Hamas on October 7th, uh, uh, but at least it contained certain things in it. And it's kind of worth comparing that joint statement with what actually was agreed upon, because it's almost unreal that Canada would go that far under the current administration to uh, really... Um, uh, vote for something that is so unilaterally directed exclusively, one would think, against Israel. Uh, is this more about politics uh, at home domestically for the prime minister? Um, even Bob Ray, when he was declaring where Canada stood on this, uh, off mic, he said, we'll see how that flies in a sarcastic tone, knowing exactly what you're saying, that this doesn't hold much weight. Then why do it? Is this for uh, support at home if you're dwindling in the numbers in the polls? 
it is very difficult to know. Uh, we uh, uh, can note that the NDP, which is considerably to the left of the Liberals, or at least it's supposed to be, uh, greeted this uh, as a very positive development. But when you look at what Canada said just the day before in that resolution or joint statement, where they said that uh, um, they would be uni uh, uh, unequivocally condemning Hamas's terror attacks on Israel, the appalling loss of life and the sexual violence, that they recognize Israel's right to exist and the right to defend itself, and that a sustainable ceasefire cannot be one-sided. It stated that Hamas, these are the words, Hamas must release all hostages, must stop using Palestinian civilians as human shields and lay down its arms, which is a bit more ambiguous than saying that it has to vacate uh, governing Gaza. Um, it, it, it raised questions because already there was this kind of uh, moral muddiness to this because when the Trudeau government uh, and the Australian Prime Minister, who's rather uh, and Israel, were saying that uh, you know the price of defeating Hamas cannot be the continued suffering of uh, Palestinian civilians, uh, they were somehow suggesting that there's a magical solution to removing Hamas that they are unwilling to share with the rest of the world. We know that when Canada and NATO uh, intervened to stop Milosevic in Serbia from ethnically cleansing Kosovo Albanians, uh, according to the Wilson Center in Washington, at least 2,000 civilians were killed and the number of soldiers were something like 700, so that would be about roughly 3 to 1, whereas in Gaza it's less than 2 to 1. But then when we look at the actual resolution that was passed, the one that Bob Ray somehow voted for and did not resign, uh, because he did have that option of uh, resigning uh, his position and not go along with this, uh, it demands this resolution by the General Assembly, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. It doesn't name Hamas, doesn't blame Hamas uh, for starting this war. There was a ceasefire on October 6th that Hamas broke, and Hamas has never kept its word on any ceasefire, including that brief truce that existed. And it, uh, this resolution de demanded the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages without naming the fact that it is only Hamas that's holding hostages. So it failed to condemn Hamas. It uh, had no specific reference to it. Um, the Austrian government was so appalled by it that they voted against it, uh, uh, as uh, uh, did a number of uh, other governments, including the United States and the uh, Czech government, and then European allies such as uh, Germany, Italy, Britain, all abstained. And Canada yeah. did not. So it's really difficult to understand how the Trudeau government could have taken such a very sharp um, uh, turn against a democratic ally uh, when it is in uh, this uh, war of self-defense against a banned terrorist group, one that's listed under, under the criminal code in Canada, Hamas. We could talk forever on this. Arl, Arl Brown with us, professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. The UN General Assembly voted uh, for a humanitarian ceasefire. We'll, we'll see where that goes. It sounds good, uh, but is it reality? Arl, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing very well, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing fine. I understand one of the topics on your show tonight. Uh, this was the chatter, I guess, a few weeks ago in Toronto in regard to uh, the stewardship of the Gardner mm. Expressway and all of that sort of stuff and uh, taking it off the city's hands and back to the province. Now, Hamilton is looking to have the same discussion regarding the Red Hill Valley Parkway and the link. Your thoughts on all of this? Well, we, yeah, we talked about it last night and it came up at council today. Um, so the mayor, Andrew Horvath, wants to, I, from the sounds of it, try and get the same deal or similar that Olivia Chow got because Olivia Chow, as people know, got um, the province to pick up the maintenance and whatever else of the Gardner Expressway and Don Valley Parkway. Very expensive. And, but the city of Toronto to get that had to make a deal. They had to give the province a piece of Ontario place that was owned by the province, uh, owned by the city. Mm -hmm. And they then had to promise that they would not challenge the redevelopment the province wants to make of Ontario place. And so it's a little bit more expansive than that. But so the, the question is, and we were talking about it last night and I'll ask you the same question. I don't believe that the province is simply going to take possession or take responsibility for our parkways, the link and the Red Hill and all the costs that come with that just because it's Christmas time. Exactly. There's going to have to be a negotiation, I think. Yeah. And they're going to want something. What's in it, what's in it for them? Right. There's going to, I think there's going to be a negotiation if this happens. And I think they're going to say, look, we want this in exchange. And I was sitting down today and I've written something for tomorrow and I was sitting down today thinking, well, what would that be? I was thinking about it last night too, when we were on the show. And, and let me, I'll get you to go first. What do you think the province would ask for if they said, we'll take it, but we want this. What do you think that would be? I don't know. Um, I, first of all, I start examining the waterfront, but, um, well, that's not a bad idea. I mean, that would be one that I think would probably be in the mix. I, the first one that came to mind for me yesterday was we just went through the, you know, the province has pushed really hard that it wants more space for housing. We just went through this whole urban boundary. You think, what, urban what boundary? if, Hey, I tell you what, um, I, you know, if you're Doug Ford, you say, look, I promised that I wasn't going to force any urban boundary expansion or green belt expansion, but I said, didn't say anything about if the city did it. You expand your urban boundary a bit and we may have a deal here. I don't What's know. What's in that for the Ford government though? I mean, you well, know, whereas there here, there's an actual exchange of money and ex actual exchange of, of liability, not liability, not really. but certainly of benefit. Not really because they're, they're just developing Ontario place into the thing that they think is they, that people in Ontario would want. Well, is, is, is creating more space for homes, what they think the people of Ontario would want, that that's an important thing. That, that may not be the only thing that may not be the thing at all. And in fact, I would suggest that for the city of Hamilton, for this city council to reverse course and open the urban boundary would be a humiliating turn of face for the council. I don't see that they would do that quite honestly, but then what else? I mean, I just, I can't. So wait a sec. So that, uh, let's talk about that. So if that is a hypothetical deal, uh, expand urban boundary, build more housing, we'll take this off your hands. How is that not worth it? <laughs> Bec well, I, look, you can make a case. Because the houses need to be built and someone's got to pay for the roads. You can make it. I think you could make a case for that for sure. The problem you would have, I think, if your city council is you fought so hard, so many members of council to say it is basically almost evil. It's immoral almost to go onto the green belt and expand our urban boundary. How do you then for just money, although, you know, I mean, we know how the world works, but how do you then turn around and say, well, yeah, but you know, it kind of was a good deal. I, I just don't know how you, how you make that case. If you're council, I think you would have a lot of very angry people. 
I don't think old arguments fly anymore in the world that we're living in. I think the game has changed, and the Greenbelt discussion was a great example of that, and we've talked about this before, because the one great thing that came out of the big Greenbelt debate was it drew attention to all of the 20 to 40 years' worth of land that municipalities Mm. have been sitting on, sitting on their hands forever, and they said, see, you don't need to build on the Greenbelt, we got all this land. Well, why haven't you built on that? So, uh, you know, that, uh, that again, was just I was one. just, I was just, I was just talking to Mike Moffat, uh, you know, in regard to the uh, wartime building plans and whatever. And, you know, build is a bad word in Ontario. And he said, no, that is changing. And I really think the game has changed in a post pandemic world. And that, you know what? And that's one of them. That's the first one that came to mind for me. If the mayor was going to go sit down with Doug Ford, that to me was the most logical and obvious thing that might be. Three words. Wild waterworks. Well, that was another one. What about Confederation Park? A few 45 story towers for condos and apartments and redevelopment that redeveloped that area. What about, you know what? There's three other letters that are very prominent in this city that the province could have some interest. What about something to do with the LRT? Either the city has to pick up part of the tab or the province gets to fully operate and maintain and do all those things. So it completely controls. There's Scott, there's all kinds of different things that might be of interest to the province. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question of what would they want? What would the deal be? Is there, are they even interested in a deal? Does the province even want to... Wait a sec. And does the, does the city even have the capacity to have this discussion? Really? Well, they does passed the city the motion have to, the capacity to even have this discussion? So they passed the motion these, today. And make these kinds of decisions. They passed the motion today to begin exploring this, which is like the mayor go and start having these discussions. Now, she would not be able to sit down with Doug Ford and unilaterally decide, even though she's got strong mayor powers, these kind of things, it would have to come back to council. And you know that if any of the things that we've just thrown out were to come back to council, it would be a war. It would be, I mean, it would be like, there would be people swinging from the fences on both sides of the aisle on this thing. So I don't know what ends up happening. But you know what, for a city that is not flush with cash, and I'm being sarcastic because that's the biggest understatement of all time, that's looking at an enormous tax increase. If it's, if you're talking about getting rid of shedding tens of millions of dollars to expand the highways, to upkeep the highway, to do all these kind of things, you know, I think it was our, it was that old wrestler, Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man who once said, (laughs) everybody has his price. And so what is Hamilton's price is really the ultimate question here. What are we willing, if this is enough money that would be saved, what is the price we would be willing to pay to make that happen? And honestly, Scott, I do not have the answer. I have no idea what that would be. Can you use the strong mayor powers to override the premier? Ah, never mind. Well, you know what? I know you got to run, but here's a question that I don't know. And I tried to find out today because one of the things I wondered about was the Sir John A. Macdonald lot. Because that could be really enticing maybe to the province with the whole entertainment district. Can the city expropriate from the school board? All right. Questions that will be asked and maybe answered later tonight after six o'clock on the Scott Radley show. Thank you, Scott. Have a great one. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via email from Mr. Lowe. Last night, our family attended the performance of Mamma Mia by Bishop Ryan High School's theater group. Just an outstanding performance and shows the positive work our youth and their teachers are doing while working together. Kudos to the students and staff. Mr. Lowe. 